Take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'm going to begin in verse 1, but before we do that, let's pray. Our dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to, to be here as a family, to be together with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we, people that we know and, and have known for years, that we, that we love dearly and care for dearly, and Lord, people that we've never met before this morning. But even though we've never met, Lord, I thank you for them and for the fact that if they've trusted in you as their Lord and Savior and your finished work on the cross of Calvary, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, open this word together, that we can set aside the, the things of this world that distract us, that we set aside all the struggles and hardships and just allow your word and your Holy Spirit to, to teach us and convict us and correct us and instruct us in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that as we spend time together in the word of God, that, that, that your word changes us, transforms us, and molds us into what you would have us to be. And Lord, may this not be our only spiritual food for the week. May we spend time daily hearing from you in your word and allowing your Holy Spirit to teach us every day. It's in your Son's name I pray, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his, all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, that, which I command thee, thou, and thy sons, and thy sons' sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thine might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets before thine eyes, and, they shall, and thou shalt write them upon the part, posts of thy house, and on thy gates. And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house 
a bondage. I wanted to begin here this morning because God issues a very stark warning to the Israelites. They had been in the wilderness. They were about to go into that land, that land that it describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. They are are about to enter that promised land. And when they entered that land, there, there was nothing that they looked at, nothing that they touched that they personally had anything to do with establishing. God was blessing them. Everything that their, every place that their feet touched, everything that they ate, every house that they went into, every vineyard, every olive tree, all of it was a blessing from God. And you come to verse 12, and in verse 12, God issues them a warning. He says, listen, when you go into that land, when you experience all of those blessings that I, have to, that I am providing for you, then beware, lest you forget about me. And what do we do today? We think of those Israelites today, we look back on passages like that, we, we shake our heads, we wag our fingers, and we think, shame on them. Shame on them that they went into that land filled with all of those blessings, where everywhere they looked, everything was a blessing from God. How could those Israelites possibly... How could anybody in their right mind forget about the giver of those blessings? Shame on them. (laughs) But then you come over to Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there if you will. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We today have been blessed, haven't we? We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And he goes on down through in Ephesians chapter 1 and begins to expound on all of those blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ. And I wonder, we who who point our fingers at those Israelites and think, how could they possibly have forgotten the Lord? And I sometimes wonder if we in this dispensation of grace who have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, don't allow the very blessings that we've been given to distract us from the giver of the blessings, to cause us to focus. We focus on all of the blessings that we have, and we should know all the blessings that we have. We should be familiar with all of those blessings that we have. But somehow, Christians are masterful at making Christianity about the Christian and not the Christ of Christianity. Have you ever noticed how good we are at that? And how, how we make the focus, we put the focus on us. And in putting the focus on us and all that we have and all that we've been blessed with, that we take our focus off of the one who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. This morning, 
you came to church, some of you from close by, some of you from a long ways away. How far do you live? 75 miles away. And, and we all come together and we all have that, that, that bond in Christ that, that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, we, we all are sealed into Christ. We have all of those spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And, and, and we come together and in that common bond that we have in Christ, we, we, we come together in a setting like this and we do all of the churchy things, right? I mean, when you walk up, there's, there is this structure that is the, it is the church, and it is, it is a, an anchor in the community, and, and, and you come into the church, and there's, there's things that, that are familiar to churches. There's, there's a pulpit, there's pews, there's, there's a piano, there's an organ, there's music, so there's, there's songs that we sing that we are familiar with. We do, we do all those familiar church things. And if, if you came to this church, somebody could walk into this church and, and be familiar with certain aspects of things that, things that you do, that they could go to a lot of churches and find familiarity in those things. But if somebody walked into St. Louis Bible Fellowship and they walked through that door and they were a stranger and they'd never been here before and, and they would, they would want to find out about this church, you know, they weren't just somebody who... who crept in at the last minute and snuck out before the last song and just wanted to be in that familiar place, but they were genuinely interested in St. Louis Bible Fellowship. And you walked up to them and, and they asked you, what kind of church is this? Now they might be asking, wanting to know, is this, you know, what denomination is this? But they would be asking, what kind of a church is this? You might answer them by saying, well, this is, this is a, a grace church. And they might respond, well, what is that? What is a grace church? What does grace mean? And of course, that would then take you down a rabbit trail of, of options of how you're going to explain to that person, what, what is? What is a grace church? What is grace? And you might say, say something like, well, we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You might give them Romans chapter 6, verse 14. We're not under the law, we're under grace. You might, you might explain to them, begin to explain to them, well, we believe in the uniqueness of, of that message that was given to and through the Apostle Paul for us today. And you, you might go into all of these different possible ideas of explaining to them what grace is. You, you may say, you may use that acronym, well, grace, that's God's riches at Christ's expense. And, and we, we throw that word grace around a lot in a grace church. But I, I, what I want to do this morning is I, I want us to understand maybe an aspect of grace that we don't think about a lot of times. Is grace, is grace today just salvation? Is that all that grace is today? Of course not. I mean, we are certainly saved by grace through faith apart from works, but that's not all that grace is. Is grace just a message? 
Is that all that grace is? Is it just a message that, you know, we come here on Sundays and we have to understand and Pastor Rick's going to come up? You go by Pastor Rick or Pastor Owsley? Pastor Rick? All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so Pastor Rick stands up here and he preaches this message and you listen to the message and, and it's just, is it just a message to be understood just so you understand, just so, well, you know, we don't water baptize. Check, I understand that. You know, we don't, we don't speak in tongues. Check. We don't, we understand the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Is that all that grace is? Or is it something more than that? Is it more than just uh, theological points to be understood? Sure it is. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and I'll, I'll explain to you where I'm going with this. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, stop there for just a second. There's the part about grace being for salvation, right? But verse 12 is the verse that really started me down this, this train of thought. It says, verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, teaching us the difference between the rapture and the second coming, Water baptism versus spiritual baptism. Is that what it says? Anybody's Bible say that? What does it say? It says, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I read that verse, I've probably read that verse since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And, and, and it just, it struck me. Wait a minute. Grace is a teacher. Yes, grace is, is for salvation. Yes, grace is a message. But I also realized that grace is a teacher that teaches us how to live in this present world. And the more I thought about that, I started thinking, well, the Holy Spirit is really the teacher. The, the Holy Spirit is the teacher that, that as we get into the Word of God, the Holy Spirit corrects us and convicts us and instructs us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But as I put that, to, that thought together with this verse, I, the thought came to me, if the Holy Spirit is the teacher, then the grace of God is the curriculum that the Holy Spirit is using to take us from, from who we are without Christ to who we should be in Christ every day of our lives. And as I thought about that, my, my mind started to wander because we, we have Paul's epistles today. We have Romans to Philemon. And as you, I started to look at those, those letters, those, those books of the Bible, more as a curriculum to be studied. Romans 12 talks about renewing our mind and, and that you, you live this life for him. But I come back to Titus 2, 11 and 12 and I realized, wait, Grace is a curriculum. We should study it as a curriculum. We should look at it as a curriculum where somebody can come in at one end, wherever they are, without Christ or saved, it doesn't matter. But as they go through, they come out, and I'll explain that in just a minute. That sounded not good, but I'll explain that in just a minute. But come out the other end, 
living a life truly transformed by grace. And so how does that work? Think about this. Let's go through Paul's epistles this morning very quickly. I want to get to Philemon, but, but we have to do this. The book of Romans. If somebody, again, let's use the same illustration. Somebody comes through that door, you, you come face to face with them, you're having a conversation about spiritual things, you ask them, do you know where you're going to spend eternity when you die? And they give some answer that clearly indicates they have no idea where they're going when they die. Well, I hope so. Well, I really, I think I've done enough good things to get me there. Right away, the, 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 the red flag should go up, this person is not saved. If that person's not saved, where would you take them in the Bible? Where would you take them? That's, that's a question. Where would you start? Somebody say it. You, t- you take them to Romans. Thank you. I'm hard of hearing. You've got to talk loud. You take them to Romans. You would take them to the Romans road, wouldn't you? That's the first of Paul's epistles. Romans chapter 5 talks about being sinners and enemies. But you go down the Romans road, Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 13. And you can take somebody down the Romans road and take them from being that enemy and that sinner, that person who is on their way to a Christless eternity, to a person who who is saved, who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt where they're going to spend eternity, who is going to spend eternity with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's that's the first of Paul's epistles because the first thing you have to do is take somebody from being lost to being found, lost to being saved. And so you can literally start with either a saved person or an unsaved person, and you start through the book of Romans, you start through that curriculum, and the first thing they come face to face with in Romans 1 to 3 is their need of a Savior. And then it tells them exactly what they must believe in order to be saved. So no matter where they start, they go from being lost to being saved or being already saved and coming in and understanding the decision that they've made in Christ. But Romans goes far beyond that. Romans is a book of 16 chapters that answers so many questions for our understanding of where we are in this dispensation of grace. It tells us things like, what happened to Israel? What did happen to Israel? Romans chapter 11, they were set aside in unbelief. It talks about how how Christ came into this world. That's the the sovereignty of God in bringing Christ into this world. It talks about the free will of man, and man has the decision to make to accept or reject what Christ did, what God did in sending his son Christ into this world. It talks about, Paul in Romans chapter 16 talks about my gospel and having a desire that they understand my gospel. How important is it for any of us to understand the glorious gospel, the grace of God that was given to the Apostle Paul? And that's what the book of Romans does. It lays this foundation. It's the prerequisite for every one of Paul's epistles going forward. If you're looking at it as a curriculum, it's the first course of study that needs to be understood going forward because it lays the foundation for everything you're going to understand going forward. Now Ephesians talks about the fact that we are in a spiritual battle, does it not? And in a spiritual battle, the last thing Satan wants is for us to get saved, for us to be busy leading people to Christ, 
and then to be growing. God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If that's God's will, Satan's will is the exact, exact opposite. Satan doesn't want people to get saved. He doesn't want people to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what does Satan do? He puts pitfalls out there. Ephesians 6 talks about the methods, the wiles of the devil. What are the wiles of the devil? What are the methods that Satan uses? He puts pitfalls in our way to keep us, to, to distract us, to get us off track. So you have the person come in, they're saved, they begin to grow, they, they begin to learn about the, the, the gospel the, the, of the grace of God that was given to Paul, and along comes the flesh. And the flesh rises up and people just live in the flesh. Have you ever met a Christian who, you know they trusted Christ as their Savior, but they're not living like it. They got caught up in the flesh, they got caught up in, in serving the flesh and living for themselves. You know what the book of the letters to the Corinthians was all about? A church filled with people who were caught up in the flesh. It addresses all those topics. By the way, do you know why the Corinthians were living like they were? Anybody want to take a guess at that? Because they had bad theology. Did you ever read 1 Corinthians 15? They didn't believe that there was such a thing as resurrection. Some of them didn't. They were teaching that there was no such thing as resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, if, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then Christ didn't raise from the dead. Let me ask you something. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, how would you be living? Might as well go live like the world. Doesn't matter. But Christ did raise from the dead. And Paul addresses the carnality, the flesh, living in the flesh that the Corinthians were dealing with. That was pitfall number one. That's one thing that Satan will use to distract people from, from living out that identity that we have in Christ, on, spelled out in the book of Romans. But there's another pitfall that, that sometimes catches people, catches Christians and leads them off into the woods. That's legalism. People get caught up in the law. They go to these churches and the first thing they do is, you know, we don't want you to, we don't want you to live like the world, so we're going to put you under some laws. We're going to make sure that you're doing this, this, and this, and you're keeping the Ten Commandments. You're doing all these things, and they put people under the law. Have you ever read Paul's letter to the church at Galatia? What's it about? It's about a church that was being put under the law. And so the first thing out of the, if you're looking at Paul's epistles as something that teaches us how to live, you see the foundation, the prerequisite class, Romans, being laid. And then you see the next two classes are Corinthians and Galatians dealing with the pitfalls that can, can distract people and lead them astray and keep them from experiencing and understanding the grace of God. Have you ever tried to share with somebody who's caught up in legalism about the grace of God and they just, they just cannot see it? I was, I was at a Grace Church one time talking to an elder at the Grace Church, and he was arguing for the fact that when a person gets saved, we need to give them a little bit of law till they get their footing. I said, what, show me that verse in the Bible. It's the grace of God that teaches us how to live. You put them under law, you're never going to get them out of it. So then we have, the, we have the Romans, we have Corinthians, we have Galatians, but if a person can avoid the pitfalls of Corinthians and the Galatians... If a church can avoid the pitfalls of Corinthians and Galatians, what comes next? They become a healthy church, a healthy individual. What's next in Paul's epistles? That's Ephesians. The church at Ephesus was a very healthy church. They understood their identity in Christ. 
they understood who they were and they were living out that identity in Christ. And if you become a healthy, healthy spiritually, if you understand your identity in Christ, if you understand the grace of God, your focus starts to become outward. And you begin to serve and live in this world serving the world around you and serving others and serving the body of Christ and ultimately serving your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Philippians is a letter written to a church that was focused on serving. The theme of the book of Philippians, I know it's always preached, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, right? I always argue that the theme of the book of Philippians is service and joy is the result of serving the Lord. But what happens when a church or when a Christian gets busy serving the Lord? Sometimes we get distracted, don't we? We get so busy doing the work of the Lord that just like the, the Israelites, we get our focus off of Him. Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians, and in that letter he says, you're not holding the head. What was the problem in Colossae? They had taken their focus off of Christ. The focus had had, they had taken their eyes down from up here and put it out here. And so they weren't holding the head as they should have been. When you stop keeping your focus on the Lord, the moment you take your focus off the Lord, just like Peter, when he took his eyes off the Lord, when he was walking on the water, he began to sink. What happens when we, as Christians today, when we take our focus off of the Lord, what happens next? We sink. We get discouraged. We get distracted. Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were discouraged. Why were they discouraged? Because they were under spiritual attack. Well, being under spiritual attack isn't anything special. If you're, if you're saved, you're going to be under spiritual attack. But if your focus is where it needs to be, that won't matter. The Thessalonians, though, were discouraged. How do you avoid being discouraged? How do you as a church avoid being discouraged? by the spiritual attacks. Well, you keep your focus where it, where it needs to be. How do you make sure as a church that you keep your focus where it needs to be? Paul wrote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up or I'm going to be off the stage. After Thessalonians, Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, two letters to Timothy and a letter to Titus. And in those letters, we find the qualifications for elders and deacons. That's a random thing. Why, why is that so important? Because the elders are, are the spiritual leaders of the church. Their, their job is to be the overseers of the truth. To make sure that the truth is being, is being stood for. That the truth is being taught. That the truth is being presented and, and not misrepresented. Because if you want your church to make, remain healthy, if you want the people, the individuals in your church to remain healthy, then you, you, need, you need qualified men to, to stand for the truth and make sure that it is being overseen, that, that, that the church is standing and doing what God has called it to do. But then there's another layer in the book of Titus. You see, if those men are doing their job, the church will keep its focus where it needs to be. But then Titus chapter 2 gets into everybody else in the church. Titus chapter 2 talks about adorning the gospel, making it attractive. But leading up to that, it talks about the older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women. 
And that's, that's not somebody who holds the office of elder necessarily. That's every man in the church teaching and learning. And there's this, there's this relationship in the church. And there's this, God brought the church together. He brought the local church together. He didn't bring us together so we could just have fellowship and sing songs, although we should have fellowship and sing songs. But there is this idea of that coming together, we can, we can watch out for one another, we can, we can care for one another, we can love one another. That's why God designed the local church to, to come together the way He did. But that leaves one letter left, Philemon. Philemon is the ugly stepchild of all of Paul's epistles. It's, it's the passage, it's, it's what, 25 verses that preachers avoid like the plague. I was a pastor for 18 years and it wasn't until the end of my 18 years that I ever remember going into the book of Philemon for anything. And I kick myself now. Because I think Philemon, we, we should spend, we should reference Philemon at least on a monthly basis. Remember that. At least on a monthly basis. Good, good. And, and here's why. If we look at Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God teaches us how to live and how to not be ungodly and all those things in this present world. If, it's te- if the gr- God's grace is the curriculum that we are going through to transform our lives, to teach us how to live, then Philemon is, is the pinnacle of, of the entire curriculum. Because what, what Philemon does is Philemon takes all of the theology of Romans through, through, through Titus. It takes all of that and it brings it all to bear in the lives of three men. If you want, if you want to understand the theology of grace, go study Romans through, through Titus. If you want to understand the application of that theology, go look at the book of Philemon. And the beauty of the book of Philemon, and I don't think this is an accident, the beauty of the book of Philemon is that it presents, it presents grace in the lives of three men that every saved individual can relate to in some way. Every one of us can relate to one of those three men. Now let's think about this. Turn to Philemon. In Philemon, we are introduced to three individuals. You have the Apostle Paul. We're all familiar with him. You have... Philemon, and you have Onesimus. Paul. Paul is, is, the, is the patriarch of grace. He was the one who came to the end of his life and he says, I fought a good fight. I have finished my, co- my course. I have kept the faith. He was faithful to the end. And, and there, are, there are men and women in this church. There are men and women in the body of Christ today, who could, like Paul, say, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, and, it, and gone home to, ready to go home to be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there are members of the body of Christ who can relate to the Apostle Paul. But then there's Philemon. We don't know as much about Philemon as we do about the Apostle Paul. I mean, Scripture tells us plenty about Philemon, but I'm saying we often don't know as much about him. Look at Philemon, verse 1. Philemon, verse 1 says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, 
our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Now, I can't be for certain on this, but I think the church is in Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus' house. Because I am pretty sure, and I read this, and I can't verify it, this is simply an educated guess, but I think Aphia was Philemon's wife, and I think Archippus was their son. Can't say for certain, just a thought, but the church is in their house. Which church would that be? The church at Colossae. Now, what did we just learn about the church at Colossae this morning? What were they guilty of? They were guilty of not holding up Christ as they should. They had, they had taken their focus off of Christ. It wasn't that it was a bad church. It wasn't that they weren't doing a lot of good things. It wasn't that they, they, didn't, they didn't look like a, a healthy church in many respects, but Paul was clearly writing to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addressing the fact that they were not holding the head as they should. If the church is meeting in your house, there's probably a really good possibility that you are heavily invested in the church that's meeting in your house, spiritually, physically, you're, you're all in, in, in this church. And this church that was meeting in Philemon's house was not holding up Christ as they should. Their, their focus was off. What are, what are the, how do you think that would affect your ministry? How do you think that would affect the ministry of St. Louis Bible Fellowship if you took your focus off of Christ? What would, be the, what would be the effects of that a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, five years from now? It, it would be destructive, wouldn't it? It, it would destroy the church. It would, the church would rot from the inside out. The building would still be here long after the, 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 the body of Christ that meets here would have rotted away. So, so we have this church in Colossae, and Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, telling him about this other member. How many of us can relate to Philemon? How many of us at times take our focus off of Christ? Guilty as charged. How often do the things of this world get so busy that I, that I fail to spend time in this book? How often does ministry get so busy, travel get busy, that, that you, you begin to neglect the, the one thing, that the only thing that matters? You get busy raising kids, you get busy with work. We, we all have things that, get, that, that steal our time. Well, that was Philemon's church. Something was stealing their focus from Christ. How does that affect this church? We'll see that in just a minute. But then, of course, there's the third person that we, can re that we find in the letter, and that is Onesimus. Onesimus was the runaway slave. It says in verse 11, which in times past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Onesimus was the runaway slave. Onesimus, we know, was not saved when he ran away. Now think about that. Look at verse, first look at verse 5. 
Paul writes to, to Philemon, he says, Hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Now that sounds very good, doesn't it? Look at verse 7. For we have, we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Twice in those first seven verses he mentions Philemon's love toward the saints. But he never mentions anything about his love for the lost, of whom Onesimus was his servant. Onesimus was his unsaved servant who, who served him and probably lived under his roof. And yet this, uh, this servant, Onesimus, didn't know the Lord, was not saved, was headed for a crisis eternity. How could, how, maybe Philemon did share the gospel. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I sometimes wonder, was it that he didn't hear the gospel? Was it that he heard the gospel and just rejected it? Or was it that maybe he didn't hear the gospel because his master had his focus off of Christ? You see, when we take our focus off of Christ, we, we compartmentalize our spiritual life, don't we? This is what we do on Sunday. This is how I live on Sunday. This is what, how I dress and act on Sunday. And this is how I live Monday through Saturday. Have you ever been guilty of that? Where you're, you're living a double life. I remember when I was a kid, I was, I was, if the doors were open, my backside was in the pew, all right? My parents had me there all the time. And I would go to, and I was in youth group, and I was in all of these programs. And when I was in junior high, I had a potty mouth. I mean, you wouldn't know that I was saved. And I wouldn't have wanted to, anybody to know that I was saved. It was like living a double life. And Christians all the time do that. Talk one way around their Christian friends and the body of Christ, and when they're not around them, live like the world. I wonder, I just wonder how Onesimus could have been living under the rulership of his master and never come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior until he ran 1,400 miles, 1,300 miles to Rome and just so happens to run into a man in prison named Paul who didn't have his focus off, who shared, even despite his surroundings, shared the gospel with Onesimus and led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then Onesimus, despite his master not having his focus on Christ, Onesimus begins to grow, and the first thing he does is he takes this letter that we have, these 25 verses. He takes that letter, and he walks and travels 1,300 miles back to Colossae and hands that letter to his master. His master held Onesimus's life in his hands. He could have had him put to death for running away. But Philemon had a choice to make. He had to choose between justice by the world's standards or grace by God's standards. And the beauty of Philemon, and I, I challenge you, we don't have the time this morning, but I challenge you to read Sit down and just read through that letter. 
it'll take you two minutes. Read through that letter a couple times to understand the heart of the man who wrote the letter, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he was the apostle. He had the authority to demand that Philemon do certain things, and yet he writes this letter, and he says he challenges, he challenges Philemon to accept Onesimus back. He doesn't require it. He gives Philemon the opportunity to extend grace to someone who really didn't deserve it. He was unprofitable before he ran away. He didn't deserve grace. But then again, who of us, de- who of us ever deserves grace? When Christ went to that cross, I didn't deserve grace. You didn't deserve grace. That's the beauty of Philemon. Philemon is the perfect picture of grace in our day-to-day lives. We live in a society where people are always demanding justice. Justice for this person, justice for that person. It's a much catchier slogan than grace for so-and-so. Why don't we extend grace? Why doesn't the church extend grace? Why doesn't the church demonstrate grace to the, wor- to the world and to, to other members of the body of Christ like God extended grace to us? That's the beauty of the book of Philemon. And let me just finish with verse 6. Philemon, verse 6. I think Philemon 6 is a verse that should be memorized. I think it's just as important a verse as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and the Romans road in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Of all the verses in, in this letter to Philemon, I think verse 6 is critical to our understanding. It says that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The word for communication there has the idea of intimacy, a fellowship, that the intimacy of thy faith, the closeness of thy faith, the fellowship of thy faith may become empowered, may become energized. How? How does that, that faith, the intimacy of that faith become energized in us? By the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. All of that curriculum of Romans to Titus here's why it matters I wrote in my Bible when asked or called upon to do hard things and all of us at times in our life are asked and called upon to do hard things we must draw upon our intimate relationship with him and dwell upon all of our spiritual blessings which we have in Christ it's that focus that takes us through. Philemon was about to make a very difficult decision to extend grace versus seek justice. But it was his acknowledging of every good thing in him, in Christ Jesus, that would allow him to make that decision. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we could spend in your word. And Lord, I just pray that these words do not fall on on deaf ears and, and hard hearts but that we understand what grace looks like in our day-to-day lives and that we seek to allow grace to be lived out in our day-to-day lives in your strength. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Paul. What a message. Amen.
If you don't know the Lord Jesus is your Savior this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. We want to make sure that you understand the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that's offered to you this very moment. Salvation is not something you work for, not something based on your deeds, your merits, but on God's grace. That gift that's offered to all who by faith trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One other piece of announcement that I meant to do earlier, and I forgot to do it. We were planning on doing it. Um, wanted to show you a verse that someone asked me to make sure that I share this verse with you this morning. You know, every week, right before I preach, we share a verse that one of you have picked as your favorite verse, or the verse that was meaningful to you this week, a verse that helped get you through this week or encouraged you. Uh, Darlene Lancaster wants me to share a verse with you this morning, just so you know where her heart, her mind, where her, emo her emotions are. Philippians 4.13. And I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. She want to make sure you understand that as we depart this morning. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the message that we just heard. Father, we thank you so very much for the truth that came from Paul as he shared what you had placed on his heart. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of encouragement. We thank you for the words of us being challenged. And Father, may we leave here this morning understanding our role, our duty, our responsibility to be those ministers of the word of reconciliation and with boldness proclaim the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those ministers, those ambassadors that you would have us to be. Now, Father, we just pray your blessings on this day. We pray all these things in that name that's above all other names, in the name of Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all.